Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Ruth Lopez-Turley. Dr. Lopez-Turley is a professor of sociology at Rice University, as well as the director of the Houston Education Research Consortium and the associate director of Kinder Institute for Urban Research. Her work aims to improve the connection between education research and policy practice. Both Ruth and her husband have written for The Well in years past on the integration of faith and work, as well as the balance of family and professional career. We hope you'll find this conversation with Ruth as meaningful as we did. Hi, Ruth. Thank you so much for being on our podcast and sharing your time with us. We usually begin the podcast by asking our guests to share a little bit about themselves, in particular, their educational background and how they ended up in their current vocation. I wonder if you wouldn't mind even going back a little further in time and sharing a bit more of your story and background that led you to eventually become a professor. Sure. Um, well, thanks for having me, and um, I'm happy to share a little bit about uh, my story. And um, so, I actually I grew up on the U.S. Mexico border uh, in Laredo, Texas, and um, I was exposed to a lot of stuff on the border. And uh, you know, I don't know if, if you know anything about that area, but there's a lot of poverty. There. Um, you know, it's, it's a great area. Um, a lot of wonderful things are going on in, in the, along the border, but, but there are also a lot of huge challenges. And it was those challenges that got me thinking about educational opportunities from a fairly early age, although I wouldn't have called them that. I didn't have, you know, labels for the things that I was observing, but I was certainly exposed to inequities early on and, uh, so when I got a chance to go to college through a lot of uh, help from a lot of people, I, I actually didn't think I was going to college at first and because I knew I couldn't afford it. But through the, the right people that came into my life at the right time that gave me information about financial aid and things like that, I was able to, to go to, to Stanford. And it was there that I learned that there were people that study these things, people that study educational inequities and people that study poverty and things like that. And so I was quite attracted to that and began studying these things as an undergrad and even uh, and then and then dove into it further, of course, in grad school. And it, it was in grad school that I I think I first realized that well, I, I really wanted to get into research. Mm-hmm. That I decided that I I actually started doing a little bit of research as an undergrad, and then of course really dove in in grad school and and decided I wanted to get in, into research because um, I thought that research could really have an impact, that research could inform decision-making, that research could change things and make things better for a lot of people all at once. You know, know, if you take a look at the big picture at the macro level system, Mm -hmm. and that was really attractive to me. So after (laughs) I got my uh, PhD, I got my first academic job and loved it and loved the the research uh, that I got into but it was then that I uh, 
started to realize that that research doesn't really have an impact that I was really wrong about I was really wrong about what I thought I knew about research. I thought research could be a really powerful tool and and I I you know when I um, was promoted with tenure I you know looked back on my career and was reflecting on all the research that I had done up to that point and realized that none of it had changed anything for anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it had, it had not had an impact on anyone other than, you know, of course I, I wouldn't say it was a complete waste of time because I, I learned a lot and it helped my career, but I couldn't point to anybody else benefiting. Interesting. Cause um, I'm actually a, a graduate student right now in uh, clinical mental health counseling. And my class that just started this week is uh, research design and statistics. So the whole uh, first week was all about why research is so important, why it matters, et cetera, et cetera. So <laughs> I'm like, oh no, what do you mean your research didn't matter? Can you say more about like why, why you felt like it? So you said it didn't really change things. Right. Uh, um, so in in the academy, so I'm, I'm referring to academic research, right? Okay, gotcha. Um, academic research primarily aims to inform other academics. Mm-hmm. Um, the rewards that we receive, that academics receive for uh, producing research are based on uh, publications and citations. Okay. And the more prestigious the publication, the better. The more citations, the better. But that, that all that refers to academic publications, right? In academic journals or academic publishers. And uh, the citations are by other academics. So the entire process is really about informing other academics. That is what is rewarded. That is, that is the whole endeavor in academic research. If you if your research happens to inform other people, that's great, but that's not what's rewarded. That's not how the system is set up. Mm-hmm. So that's like, you know, if you take it upon yourself to go above and beyond, you know, the academic publication. So I actually remember asking about this when I was in grad school and I was told that, you know, eventually that information trickles down into the hands of practitioners or um, people that can apply that, that knowledge. And even then I was a bit skeptical when it was explained to me in that way. I thought that seems like an, in, at the very least inefficient process and probably also an ineffective process. And then once I became a professor and, and started publishing research and published enough to, you know, to get tenure, I thought, okay, I've, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. And yet it has not reach the hands of people that can actually use this information. And in the meantime, when I started talking to education leaders, people, administrators, people that are involved in um, local education agencies or state education agencies and asked about their access to, to research. And it's actually very limited. Hmm. Um, they either do not have access to, you know, all the academic journals and those search engines that, that we use in, in universities. Our, our institutions pay 
thousands right. and thousands of dollars to have access to those things. You know, local school districts don't have that kind of money lying around for for something yeah. like that. And in any case, even if they did have access to that research, it's not intended. They're not the intended audience, right? Yeah. So it's all, you know, um, academic jargon and, you know, nobody has the time to read. Right. That's manuscripts and <laughs> that, so it's not, it's not even intended for them. Um, and, and they don't, you know, many of them don't even have access to that information. And so in my field, in education research, I thought that was really tragic. Yeah, yeah, it is. So then now what are you, what are, are you still doing research as well as teaching? What is uh, your average sort of week look like? Um, almost all of my time is, is, uh, dedicated not actually to doing research, but rather to, cause I, I, I direct a research center now. Okay. Uh, so that's why I came to Rice, uh, to get a fresh start, to try to work on doing research in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was very fortunate that I got a lot of support from the administration here and, uh, and I founded a research practice partnership when I came to Rice, a partnership, a formal partnership between Rice University and initially the Houston Independent School District, which is the largest school district in Texas and one of the largest in the country. And uh, I began working very closely with their leaders, the district leaders, to, to set up an infrastructure that would allow a two-way communication where they would inform our research agenda and our research would inform their Mm -hmm. decision-making. So we wanted to set up a direct line of communication. Um, We wanted to produce research that was actually relevant to what they're, you know, the challenges that they're facing, research that was timely. We produce research briefs that that, that are aimed at that audience. Um, we also, because we are still in, in in the academy, we also produce the more traditional academic manuscripts, but our priority is to produce these research briefs that aim to inform decision-making. And in the last year and a half, we've expanded uh, our partnership to uh, now we're uh, working with 10 Houston area school districts that represent about three quarters of a million students. Wow. Uh, in this area, and we have data sharing agreements with all of those districts. We have MOUs with them. We have, you know, a large research team here on campus that is working on producing research that aims to inform directly. Uh, so that takes up, uh, I would say, almost all of my time, and I absolutely love it. It's a ton more work than <laughs> the way I used to do research but it's also a lot more rewarding. Yeah, it sounds like it just makes so much more sense and that the work is actually more meaningful since yeah. you're you're able to directly, there is change, right? So what would you say is the most rewarding or meaningful part of your work? I would say when I observe change, both at the macro level and and also at the micro level. So at the macro level, um, I have had some opportunities to see uh, some pretty big changes that 
um, have had an impact on, you know, hundreds of thousands of students all at once. And it's really, it's really moving to, um, to know that I played a small role in that. I mean, obviously I can't take, I don't want to take full credit for this because a lot of people are involved in making this work happen. And my district partners are amazing and they, they're the ones that are actually doing the work. We're just sort of informing their, their work. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but knowing that I, that I played a small role in that is so rewarding. It's so uh, motivating. It encourages me to, to um, keep doing the work because frankly, most of the time it's discouraging. Most of the time we do research studies and the results are so discouraging and, mm-hmm. you know, it's really hard to make dramatic changes. Right? Mm-hmm. We'll take small incremental changes as well. Right. We'll take whatever we can get, but, right, um, right. but every once in a while we'll see some, we'll come across something that really has a, a powerful impact and it's really exciting um, and really rewarding. And then at the micro level, through my teaching and mentoring of students, it's really exciting to uh, to get to know the students and to see them take the things that they're learning in the classroom and do really exciting things with with that. I've, now that I've been here, uh, I've been at Rice for I guess this is my ninth year here, and um, some of my earlier students have come back and. They, they stay in touch with me and they tell me about the things that they're doing that apply some of the things that they learned in my courses. And that is really awesome. I find that extremely rewarding. That's great. And then, so I want to ask about how your faith informs your work. But first, um, can you share a little bit about your faith background and how that has been formed through the years? Sure. Um, well, I actually it's kind of a weird background in that. So I grew up in the church, but it was a different, a different kind of upbringing. It, I didn't, I would say I didn't become a um, more sort of mainline Christian until I was in college. Okay. And while I was uh, in college, I, and this was actually through my boyfriend at the time, uh, who's now my husband we had a lot of really great uh, conversations about our faith and what we wanted to do with that and, and what it was doing to us. And, um, and we really connected that way. So, yeah, so I became really interested in connecting my faith to my work really pretty early on. I would, I would say Um, I really was trying to avoid compartmentalizing things like I think it happens pretty often, unfortunately, that sometimes we're tempted to, you know, have our faith on like Sundays and then, mm-hmm. and then the rest of the week we focus on our work and other things. But I was really encouraged through certain uh, friends that I made in college and in grad school and my husband really encouraged to, to blend it all together. So I really see the, the work that I'm doing right now as that is God's work. That is, it was actually the the whole concept of like really trying to connect research to decision-making was something that I had heard a little bit about through um, other efforts in other parts of the country. But uh, really what put that on my heart was um, 
when I, I went on a, on a personal retreat uh, at a monastery, okay. uh, when I was contacted, this is many years ago, I was contacted by foundation that asked me to submit a proposal um, and that was that. That was the first time that anyone had invite, had like asked me to ask them for money. I didn't even know that happened, and <laughs> I was really, of course, you know, really excited about the opportunity. But then, then kind of overwhelmed about the possibilities. Like, well, where do I start? Right? What do right, I? Right. What do I really want to do? And actually, the the person that I was communicating with from this foundation asked me a really great question. She asked me, what would you do if you had unlimited resources? Hmm. And that, that question was really amazing to me because, um, you know, no one had ever asked me that question. And I realized that I typically do the opposite of that, meaning that I typically start with my limitations Hmm. and then work from there. But I realized that question was asking me to do the opposite. That question was asking me to, instead of starting with my limitations, start with what I really want to do and then deal with my limitations. And I know it sounds like it's a simple flip, but it, it's actually a really important flip because it it really, it, it real, and this is a connection to my faith. It, it made me realize that I had been going about this all wrong in that if I believe in an all-powerful God who can do anything, then, and if I am working through that, if I can tap into that power, not my power, God's power, absolutely, then then I shouldn't limit, I, I shouldn't put my own limits on whatever it is that I, that I feel God is calling me to do, right? Right. Um, so I, I thought that question was great. And I, I thought a lot about it. And that was when I, I went on this personal retreat to really take that question seriously. And it was then that I remembered about, I, ha- I had heard about these efforts uh, to work directly with, with uh, education decision makers. And I thought, that's it. That's what I'm going to write about. That's what I'm going, that's what my proposal is going to be about and that ended up being the first the original funder of um this partnership um it's called herc the houston education research consortium okay and i used that funding to start um to start it up and and then it just blew up from there i mean it's it's been crazy like how you know like i said it expanded to other districts and we have a lot more funders involved now and not just local funders, but funders from all over the country. And, and then I started a few years ago, I started a national network of these partnerships and there are 30 member partnerships now that are, uh, we're all learning from each other and it's, you know, it's spreading. It's um, I would call it a national movement, frankly, mm-hmm. um, to really try to change the way that we do research to make sure that it has an impact. And and I can attribute the what initiated all of that in me was a very spiritual experience that I had at a monastery. Right. That's incredible. It's incredible even just to think about how one question that someone asked you can shift your whole mindset and, you know, think about, am I limiting... God, am I limiting myself and my calling? 
you know, mm-hmm. it, it reminds me of Mary, even when she, we know she hears from the angel, her calling. And she's like, well, how can this even be? She, she's sort of in that same way. Like, uh, there's some limitations here, God, you know, and, um, the response back, nothing is impossible. Your story reminds me a little bit of that in that sense of, uh, we do often whenever something's presented to us an opportunity, it's easy. I think, especially for women, would you say that we can instantly think of all the things that might hold us back? Oh, absolutely. Um, we, we focus on limitations. I think on, at a, on a societal level, our society teaches us to focus on our sure, limitations. Yeah. And, and cause those, and those limitations are real. I don't want to make it sound that they're right. Yeah. They're imagined. No, they're real. They're real limitations. And, and that's why it can be really scary. Um, when God puts something on your heart and you, and, and you feel like you can't ignore it. And yet you're scared. You're scared. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly felt that way, but then it was so liberating to realize that, that yes, I do have limitations, but but if I am connected to God in this work, then that's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's such an encouraging sort of model for so many of us to think about if we're connected to God and this is his calling on our life, then, you know, stick with it, even if there are obstacles or limitations or real real things that are in the way. Huge obstacles, yes. Yeah, huge obstacles, like on a societal level as well as like maybe just on a smaller day-to-day level. Thinking the other way around, how would you say that your work informs your faith? I would say um, when I see, when I do like, for example, I just, this semester I started teaching a course on social inequality and I recently wish last week I was showing my students some scatter plots of, you know, of all the school districts in the entire country, how the what the average student performance looks like based on their parents' socioeconomic status. And it's so strongly correlated that when you see that big picture and you see these systems that are clearly broken, it's it makes it very clear that we need God. We need, we need, we need to be fixed, right? Right. Sometimes, especially if we live in a bubble, in an academic bubble, we might be tempted to forget how problematic our world is. And so as a sociologist, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of the evidence, the research evidence that is out there on you know, discrimination is alive and well. And, and this concept of, you know, equal opportunity in the U.S. is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not real. Like we, we say that we provide equal opportunity, but we're far from it. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of work to do. And, and just to see the sort of big picture societal problems makes really reminds me constantly about how much we need God, how much we, how much we need, we need redemption. You know, we need, uh, we need to um, fix all these things and we can't do it on our own. We, we absolutely need God. And then the other way that my work has informed my faith is that um, I think 
often Christians focus on faith on an individual level. Right. But in the work that I do as a sociologist, and especially seeing how messed up our systems are, it it has helped me see that that we need to think of our faith not just as a like a an individual level personal relationship with God, but rather also as a on a on the societal level that we need to think about the ways in which we maintain really evil systems, sometimes unknowingly or just because we're just a part of these systems, these structures that were put into place by our predecessors. And and we just have to think of of the these problems, not just as like, oh, this is individual, an individual person sinning, you know, making bad decisions. Of course that happens, but we also need to think about entire societies sinning. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so my work has, has helped me understand that better. Yeah. More of the communal level rather than just the yes. individual one-on-one. Yeah. And I think you're right that um, our churches in America, I would say, tend toward that, you know, we need to get our ourselves right with God and then like, as an individual. And then that's the extent of it. There's not, hopefully that's shifting and that's changing. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. Entire, entire groups of people, entire societies, and, and then even the entire world. <laughs> right. Yeah. At a global level, the things that we do in our part of the world have an impact on other parts of the world. And most of the time we don't even know this, right. But it, but it does. So, and, and it can affect people in, in many ways, in good ways or in horrible ways. Um, and it's just something to, to be more aware of. And, it, and it's, it's kind of humbling, actually, to think about, about how we're all connected. We're more connected than, than we usually realize. Hmm. Yeah. So then, then shifting directions a little bit, both you and your husband wrote for The Well nearly a decade ago. And so those articles are still online. But in particular, your husband wrote an article for us about being a stay-at-home dad and working part-time in ministry so that he could see you succeed professionally. It was refreshing for me to read that. And um, I think probably for many others too, although probably since it was posted a decade ago, maybe not that many people have read it recently. And obviously it was a while ago, but how, how would you describe how you manage family and work right now? Well, so he's, he has, um, continued to help me a lot. Uh, he continues to be the primary, uh, childcare provider. Of course, our children are older now and they're much more independent, but now what is taking up, um, a lot of time, you know, they're in the early so a decade ago in the early days, it was, you know, changing diapers and that kind of thing that is yeah, yeah. very time consuming. But now, you know, our older son's in middle school. It's a totally different life stage, but mm-hmm. it's all their sports activities and all their, I mean, they're just super active kids. And so it's it's still very time consuming, but in a different way. And he, he does most of that work. I, there's no way that I would be able to do the, the kind of work that I'm doing right now if I did not have such a supportive spouse who 
uh, even in these circles and academic circles, a lot of people think, oh, you know, people are so progressive and, and no, they're actually (laughs) (laughs) um, not nearly as progressive as they would like to think they are often in the academy, you know, the, the trailing spouse, if you will, like if they're both academics or even if they're not both academics, but they, they want to move to a different part of the country for their job, you know, to mm-hmm. pursue some special opportunity. Almost always the trailing spouse is the woman. Right. And almost always the main, the main person that takes care of the children, if there are children, it's the woman. And almost always it's the woman that does the, that takes care of the household and blah, blah, blah. So we're kind of a, uh, an unusual household. Um, I hate to say, like even today and even in these circles, I think we're still fairly unusual, but I'm positive that there's no way I, I would be able to do the kind of work that I do if I didn't have a spouse that was really supportive and especially not like do all this and have children and, you know, be active in our church and our small groups and all that stuff. It's because he continues to be extremely supportive and he still tells me, you know, he, he gets a lot of joy from that. And I am really, really grateful. That's awesome. It's great to hear stories of women who don't have to leave behind, so to speak, their vocational calling in the career sense of vocation as well, and still be able to have the vocation of motherhood uh, mm-hmm. because the the spouse is so uh, supportive, as you shared. Even my spouse too, he does all the laundry and all the dishes. Part of that is because he doesn't like the way I do them, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. Um, but yes, likewise, he's able to, you know, help me stay in my career as well. Of course, mine's not anywhere close to the the work that you're doing. But yeah, so so I work with med students too a little bit, and they have mentioned wanting to hear from women about who are successfully, quote unquote, successfully balancing career and, and family. What encouragement or advice would you offer women who are pursuing, you know, a career that's uh, really time consuming, like either pursuing a doctorate or, or med school or something like this, and then also thinking about how that could affect their, their current or future families? Wow, that's a that's a big question. <laughs> um, I think that I guess I there are two main pieces of advice that I would um, focus on. the The first is yes, you have to think very carefully about your partner in all of this because um, the the only way to to balance both career and family is, you know, it, it takes, a, it's a big effort. Don't think that you can do it on your own. And so whoever, whoever your partner is in this work is extremely important. And, and it doesn't mean that, that that person can't also have a career and all that, but it just means that you'll, you'll have to really make sure that you have these conversations early, early on about your expectations for uh, yeah. both of those things. Um, but at the same time, I have to qualify that a little bit because, you know, your things change a lot over time. Everything changes. Your life situation can change. Uh, you might be planning to have a family and then find out you can't have a family or 
um, you get surprised by more kids. Right, yeah. Wanted. All kinds of crazy things happen that we're not in control of all of it, right? Uh, even our careers, of course, we're not, we might think we are in control. We're not, we're not in control of any of it really. I mean, maybe some small portion of it, but at the end of the day, we're not in control. Mm -hmm. So it's good to talk about our expectations with our partners, our spouses or future spouses. But at the same time, we need to understand that um, we need to be flexible. We need to, you know, there was a time when I said I wanted a lot of children. And then there was a time when I said, I didn't want any children. Um, I changed my mind. <laughs> sure. Um, and we've gone through a lot of changes. And my husband and I are now, uh, we're going to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. Congrats. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We're super excited about it. And, but we've been reflecting on all the changes, all the mm -hmm. things that we talked about early on in our relationship. And, and we just have to go with it and, and stick with the, commitment that we made to each other and, and work through the changes. But the second piece of advice I would say is, especially as a woman, whether you like it or not, because I talked earlier about like how my husband does most of the childcare, but the fact is at the beginning, it's, it's on the woman, right? The woman yeah. is the one that, that goes through the pregnancy. The woman's the one that pushes out the babies. The woman's the one that nurses the babies, you know, all that stuff. So and there's a lot that a man can do to get to be really um, involved in that process. But at, in the, at the end of the day, it's the woman. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's on you. So um, one question that I get asked a lot by especially female grad students is like, when is a good time to have kids mm -hmm. um, in grad school or after grad school or, you know, and there are pros and cons and all, and we, you know, we talk about that, but at the end of the day, there is no convenient time to have kids. <laughs> That's true. For it's, sure. never, it's never convenient. It's never like, you know, oh, this is a good time to have a kid. Like it, it, it just isn't, it's, it's costly, right? Yeah. There's so much self-sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. So my advice when it comes to like family, like family planning or thinking about like how to balance that with your career, I, my advice is, is to just, you know, accept that fact, accept that there's no convenient time and just instead make the decision on when you feel you're ready, right? When you, um, as a couple, right? When you as a couple feel that you're ready, that you want to do this, and you feel like God is, is, is putting it on your heart to do this or whatever the case may be, like, then do it. Right. That base it yeah. on that. Don't base it on yeah. like, Oh, when is it? You know, try to work it out. And cause even if you try to work it out, I tried to work it out so that my first son would be born at the end of the fall semester. And he came early. Yeah. <laughs> All these things that we try our best to work out and it's just right. out of our control. <laughs> right. I was just going to say, it comes back to that idea of we're not really in control like everything sort of having open hands to God um, allowing him to lead our lives so here's an extra question to throw in there before we we close what advice would you give if you you're if you could go back and give advice to yourself as a, a first year grad student what would you offer what wisdom would you offer that person because I actually have thought about this before. I, um, I would say, I would tell myself 
as a first year grad student to embrace criticism. Mm. I was really bad at that at the, at first. I would I would be hurt when people would criticize me or my work and you know I would I would listen but then I would be kind of offended or annoyed or you know I was really I don't know why I think it's because I was insecure I'm still sure. insecure about, about stuff you know I think that's something that we all struggle with and again I think that's uh, especially problematic for women mm-hmm. um, but I I think um it's, it's really important, not just in our professional lives, but in our personal lives, in our faith journey, right? To really be open to, to um, what's wrong, right? And right. embrace criticism. Obviously, not all of it, depending on the source, right? But if, especially if it's coming from someone you trust, someone who loves you, you just embrace it. It can be a really good thing. Mm, that's a great word. That's yeah. I, I think many of us, especially women have a hard time. Uh, the insecurity piece of it can make it difficult to receive criticism, but I appreciate you give, adding the caveat to that someone you, from someone you trust, someone that cares about you, someone that uh, has your best interest that. Yeah. That because there are also crazies out there that would just tear you down for no good reason. Sure. <laughs> yeah, there are. But oh, well, anyway. So to close, then we often we close the podcast with the same question to everyone: Would would you share a scripture, a quote, or song, or other set of words that has been meaningful to you lately? Maybe related to your faith or to your work, or perhaps both. Yeah. So it's actually just a prayer that I use throughout the day. It's just a very simple, short three word prayer that I repeat often. And it's just, God use me. Mm. I, I like having something really short, really simple that I can repeat in my mind without having to give it too much thought. Right. Like, yeah, I'm not good at memorizing like all these you know, scripture passages or whatever. I, it's, I want something, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, just to be clear. That's fine. But um, for me, what has been very helpful is I want something that I can, that I can, you know, retrieve. Yeah. Yeah. Really quickly. And just say it as I walk into the classroom or say it as I'm about to make a really difficult phone call, Mm. say it as I'm walking into a boardroom, say it as I'm about to meet with my leadership team or whatever, you know, just to say something, a prayer that I can repeat in my mind, very simple, very, but it's something that I really, but it's an honest prayer. Like God, God use me. I, you know, whatever's going to happen here, use me. Yeah. Then it becomes that prayer, sort of you're a vessel for God's work and continuing in your, your calling and as well as just in your own relationship with him. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Ruth, for sharing with us your story and your time and your wisdom. Um, We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. 
This is Caroline Trissick, and information about this episode or our guest can be found at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.